This is the second week of our series, Love Money. And if you're a guest with us, I understand. You're probably thinking right now, like, why did I come to church today? They're talking about money. And I'm on to you, Pastor. I see you're wearing a suit, but no tie. You're trying to be relatable, yet talk about money. I know your game. I know what's happening. Uh, let me reiterate. Nobody asked you here for your money. If you're visiting with us for the first time, we're really glad you're here. Um, and, and honestly, if I was visiting a community, I would want to hear how that community talks about money. Uh, because the church does have a bad reputation at times when it comes to money. And I want to know what this church thinks about money, how they talk about money, uh, and how they see money operating in our lives. Because all of us have to deal with money day in and day out. And so in this series, uh, we're exploring mostly how problematic the love of money can be. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. But it's, it's not just money that's dangerous. It's the love of money that's dangerous. And while we're looking at that, more importantly, we're looking at how God wants us to use money within the world. How God wants us to use money in a positive way. Not just the negative effects of loving money, but a positive approach of how do we use money in a way that is honoring to God and his kingdom. Last week, we looked at the issue of contentment. How money and the love of money can rob us of lasting contentment. Because lasting contentment is not going to be found in our bank accounts or in our circumstances or even in ourselves. True and lasting contentment is only found in Jesus, the one who gives us strength to be content in any and all circumstances. But the love of money has more symptoms than just discontentment. So this week we're focusing on 1 Timothy chapter 6 and two chunks, uh, verse, verses 9 through 10 and verses 17 through 19. And what's particularly helpful about these verses uh, isn't that they just further illustrate the danger of the love of money, but they, they clearly show us a vision and a corrective of how money should fit within our lives, especially if we're rich. So this morning, I want to look at three things. Uh, the dead end of riches, reframing our money, and enjoying our riches. So open your Bibles with me, if you have one, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 9 through 10 and 17 through 19. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They're to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good for foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's move into the first thing I want to talk about this morning, the dead end of riches. Paul is explicit on this point. When the pursuit of becoming wealthy is our sole aim, it's a dead end. It's a temptation, that's for sure, but it's also a snare. It's like getting your foot caught in a bear trap. That's just not a good thing. Um, the, the love of money, Paul says, it'll plunge people into ruin and destruction. Literally, it could be translated, it'll plunge you into death and destruction. If the only thing you want to achieve uh, by becoming wealthy is just being wealthy, you're not going to find life. Things will actually fall apart and unravel on a pathway to destruction. This is what Paul's saying. 
Uh, the Globe and Mail, they recently run this, this article. It's just insane. Uh, they talked about a couple that's struggling to make ends meet on a joint income of $25,000 a month. Not a year, a month. And this couple is racking up $50,000 of a debt per year right now. It's absurd. It's so absurd that many people said the Globe just wrote this, this article to try to drive you know, traffic to their site. That's not even real. But everyone's saying it, it actually it is. It's real. This is a real couple. And so the article, it lists their monthly expenses as you know, a $3,800 mortgage, $5,400 for private school, for their kids, I think they have five kids, uh, $2,800 for childcare, and this is a nice one, $2,000 a month for travel or vacation. The problem with the, the, the Globe Presents is that this couple has the wrong expectations of what they can get out of life with their riches. They're unfortunately, they're in a snare, they're, they're, they're caught in a temptation, they're trapped, and they're sinking with debt despite being rich because they're entitled. They live as if they're entitled to more, as if they're entitled to have it all, and they're blind to how misplaced their expectations truly are. And they feel the pain of not having enough, feeling like they can't survive, despite having more than 98% of the population. The love of money, it breeds entitlement, and it's a senseless and harmful desire. And the moment we become entitled, we're set on a path of destruction. Consider verse 10. Paul writes, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul, he calls the love of money a craving, an unquenchable hunger, a hunger that will consume you. And just like overeating, if you overindulge in money, you will be pierced with pangs. You'll be full of mental and emotional distress, and it'll especially destroy the way you see yourself and the way that you relate to others. And this has actually become the study uh, for, for many surveys over recent years. Uh, the University of California at Berkeley conducted a, a bunch of studies on the psychology of the rich. It's really interesting. Uh, here's, here's one. They set up cameras at, at city um, intersections, four-way stops, right? and they had people taking notes and observing. How rich cars, you know, expensive cars, relate to poorer cars. And by and large, the people driving expensive cars were four times more likely to cut in front of other drivers uh, than the drivers with cheap cars. And the people with expensive cars were 46% more likely to cut off pedestrians. Uh, okay. And in another study by Berkeley, a, a game was rigged where cash prizes were in favor of one of the players. And what they found is it didn't matter who it was. As that person became richer and richer, they started to cheat. Every time. In another study uh, at the New York State of Psychiatric Institution, uh, they surveyed 43,000 Americans, and they found that the rich are actually more likely to shoplift than the poor. Here's another one. Uh, they, they, they looked at people with incomes below 25 grand and found that, on average, they give away 4.2% of their income, whereas people earning 150 grand a year give away only 2.7% of their income. One more, and this one is so sobering. A study conducted by a UCLA neuroscientist. They discovered if you show rich people and poor people photos of children with cancer, that the poor people's brains show more empathy activity in their brains than the rich people's brains. Dasher Keltner, who you know, conducted many of these studies and wrote a book on it, he says, 
as you move up the class ladder, you're more likely to violate the rules of the road, to lie, to cheat, to take candy from kids, because candy is delicious and worth it, uh, to shoplift, and to be tight-fisted in giving to others. And these studies, they only back up what Paul wrote thousands of years ago. If you love money, you're slowly going to self-destruct. And you're going to be pierced with many pains. And one of the pains is a selfishness that blinds you. Because the love of money, it can infuse us with a false sense of self. Being rich can convince us that we're more important than we really are. That we're more important than others. And that we're more deserving of others. We're superior and we're better and we're above the rules. And so we become entitled. Thinking that we should have whatever it is that we want. And still, other pains come with the love of money. There's the stress of overwork, of having to acquire more and more, the sacrifice of time uh, to spend with friends or family or your children or even just to care well for yourself. And the desire uh, for money, it just gives birth to the desire for more money. You can never quite have enough. And then there's the anxiety and the worry that comes with the fluctuating stock markets. Will my money be there tomorrow? Will there be more? Will there be less in the morning? Being rich, it can actually give birth to stinginess. You know, when you're gripped with the fear of losing what you've worked so hard to have, uh, the tendency is to then hoard it and keep it to yourself. And the irony is then you don't even enjoy the very riches that you've been giving your life and sacrificing to earn. When we love money, it destroys us. It shouldn't surprise us that Paul says in verse 10 that it's through this craving to be rich that some have wandered away from the faith. When you love money, it's likely you're going to wander away from the faith. Why is that? Jesus says, you cannot serve God and money. The life of faith is antithetical to the life that pursues solely after money. When we pursue money for its own sake, we're actually pursuing our own well-being above others. Uh, we put ourselves at the center of the world, and it's all about us. But Christ, he tells us to lay down our lives, to seek the well-being of others before our own well-being. These two things do not work well together. When we pursue money for its own sake, we become greedy and we hoard and we're full of anxiety, but Christ calls us to give and to share and to not worry about tomorrow, but to trust him here and today. How can you reconcile these two worldviews? You can't. Paul's explicit. The pursuit of money as an end in itself is a dead end. It ends in destruction. You'll be discontent. You'll have pain. You'll be selfish. You'll have a false sense of identity. And it'll ultimately give way to a lifestyle that leads you away from the faith. This brings me to my second point, though. Reframing riches. Because Paul, he's not concerned about wagging his finger at the rich. Nor is he unequivocally against being rich. I think this is often a misconception among uh, Christian theology. Uh, there are so many scriptures right, that challenge the rich because there are some serious dangers and risks with being rich. But the scriptures aren't in and of themselves against being rich. Verses 17 through 19, they actually serve as a corrective for two groups of people. They serve as a corrective for the rich. If you're rich and you're a Christian, how should I live? These verses are for you. But they also serve as a corrective to the people who say, you can't be a Christian and rich because Jesus, he was poor and he's against money. No. That's why we need these verses, because money takes on a totally different shape in the kingdom. It gets reframed. So look at verse 17. Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty 
of riches. Maybe at this point, right, you're breathing a sigh of relief. Well, I'm not rich. This doesn't apply to me. Our surveys show, you know, 33% of you are students. You're thinking, oh, this doesn't apply to me. This is for all the other people. Uh, and, and, you know, you think rich people are, are a certain category that you're simply not in. And maybe some of you, you know, some of you here, you just know God's honest truth, you're rich. Right? Like, you, you just know you're rich, and that's okay. And you know, without a shadow of a doubt, mo money, mo problems. Right? Like, this is just part of being rich. You got rich people problems. Uh, some people in this room, some people in this room are so rich, they're so rich that then when they leave today, they don't have to figure out how they're going to eat. They ask, what am I going to eat? Am I going to eat out or am I going to eat at home? If I go out, am I going to go to Chipotle or A&W? If I go to Chipotle, am I going to get a burrito? Am I going to supersize it? Can I do that at Chipotle? I bet I can pay enough to get that done. The answer is yes. Uh, some people in this room, you are so rich. You didn't just go to school. You went to elementary school and then high school and then uh, what's it called? Secondary school. And then you, you, you did so well that you could even choose classes that you wanted to take. You were so rich that you even got to decide what university you go to. And then you were so rich that you did doctoral work in English literature just for fun. Right? Like, this is rich people problems. Some people in this room, you're so rich. So ridiculously filthy rich. Uh, you went to the store and you came home with food. And then you had to take stuff out of your cold box. I believe rich people call this the refrigerator. And uh, you had to make room for the new food. But with the old food, you just threw it in the garbage. There's nothing wrong with it. You just didn't want to eat it. You know, rich people problems. It's important for us to understand. Uh, rich is an adjective that's really hard to define. Because it's subjective. So we say it's the person above us or before us, but not us. But statistically speaking, if you make $5,000 a year, you're in the top 15% of all wage-earning uh, households in the entire world. That means 85% of the world would look at you and say, if I was that rich, I'd go buy a top hat and a cane, and I would go dancing. If you make $37,000 a year as a household, you're wealthier than all but 4% of the entire world. If you make more than 45K, you're in the top 1% of the entire world. You're richer than 99% of the world. Sure, if we consider how far our money actually goes locally, uh, we may just be getting by in this city. I get that. But even getting by in this city would be considered extravagant globally. When Paul says, as for the rich in this present age, he's speaking to me. He's speaking to you because we're rich. Which means we really want to listen because he's not interested in condemning us for being rich. He wants to reframe how we see and how we use our riches. Look at verse 17 again. Paul writes, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Don't be haughty. Don't be proud is what he's saying. Being rich doesn't define your worth and your importance. But we, when we live as if it does, we'll inevitably let it define who we are. We wind up thinking we're worth more because we have more. And we begin to, to live as if we're worth more than other people because we have more than other people. And Paul just says, stop it. Stop it. 
Don't be proud about what you have. What you've accumulated doesn't define you. Your riches are nothing to boast about. Who you are in Christ is worth infinitely more than the poverty of being defined by your wealth. If your worth is based off of your money, you're poorer than you realize. Because in Christ, we are sons and daughters of God the Father. We're co-heirs with Christ. We will inherit everything in the age to come. Paul also says to the rich, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. We touched on this a bit. We worry about our money. Will it come? Will it go? Will I have enough to pay my bills tomorrow? Will I be able to pay tuition? Will I be able to retire? Will I be able to send my kids to school? And the truth is, sometimes we look at our bank accounts or the loans that are coming in, and we say, you know what? I'll be okay. The money's there. But it's never certain. And our worries about money, they're not unfounded. Because when we place our hope in our riches, it's not steady ground. They could be gone the next day. But you see, Paul, he's not just concerned about instructing the rich in what not to do. He goes on to say in verse 17 that the rich should set their hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so first, the rich are to remember where their riches have come from. You may have worked hard to get to where you are. You you may have worked really hard. You might pat yourself on the back and say, you know what, I've earned this. But Paul says it's God who richly provides us with everything. So if you're rich, it's not your own, it's God. His gift to you. And I know this is a difficult pill to swallow. Back in my band days, out of the five of us, in my opinion, I was the one who did most of the legwork. I think they call this lead singer syndrome. And uh, we started to see some moderate success. It was exciting. You know, I put in the hard work. We put up the posters. We built the connections. We, we, I booked the shows, you know, arranged accommodations. And there's one member, and I won't name him, but he was essentially along for the ride. Uh, I'm not even kidding. At a show, we were lucky if he could find an electrical outlet. You know, like every show, Alistair, do you know where I can plug in my electrical device? Like, seriously. Uh, as, so as things were picking up for us, though, and we're, we're touring around Canada and stuff, and uh, he just said to me out of the blue one day, and I don't even think he was a Christian, but he said, you know, man, God is just so good to us. He's done all this for us. I just, like, I wasn't a Christian, right? And, and, and it just made me so angry. Now, keep in mind, on a scale of success, a 1 out of a 10, we were a 1, maybe like a 0.5 out of a 10 in success. You know, our shows looked probably a lot more, you know, like this in actuality. Like, that was our success. That was what we were proud of. And yet, when he said, oh, man, God's just given us everything, I said, keep God out of this. Don't thank God. Thank me. That's scary stuff. <laughs> That's how our hearts respond. You know, some of you here, you've seen some success or maybe a lot of success. You've got the 10 out of 10, baby. You've worked hard. You've made your keep. Paul isn't saying your work or the effort you've put in is overlooked or unimportant before God. He's simply offering a corrective. Keep it in perspective. Keep it in perspective. There are far more factors that play into you being rich uh, than, than you think, than just your hard work, your background, your education, dare I say your skin color. And aside from these sociological realities, Paul would surely say to us, who's the one who gave you your mind, the skill of your hands, so you can do your work? Who's the one who made some opportunities work out for you when they didn't work out for other people who did the exact same thing? Who's the one who lends you your breath every single day? 
Keep it in perspective. Your riches are a gift from God. Secondly, Paul says that wealth and riches are a gift from God to enjoy. They're a gift from God to enjoy. He writes, God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy. And this is like, now you're excited. Like you're thinking, yes, 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 yes. Like I can just spend my money on whatever I want. You know, I can finally uh, go and buy, uh, I don't know, the Louis Vuitton underwear that I wanted. And I can, you know, eat out as much as I want. And, and I can enjoy my money. It's right here in the scriptures. God gives me money to enjoy it. You're not talking about enjoyment. You're talking about indulging. God doesn't say, or Paul doesn't say that God wants us to indulge in our money. He wants us to enjoy it. See, Paul, he's trying to reframe riches for the rich. A different picture emerges. It's not a bad thing to be rich or even to enjoy our riches. But first of all, our wealth cannot define who we are. And the true enjoyment of our riches won't be found in indulging in them. Because God's vision of us enjoying our money is radically different than our own. Which brings me to our last point. Enjoying our riches. How are we supposed to enjoy our riches? Look at verses 17 through 19. Paul says, God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So then the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly life. God has set up his economy in such a way that we will find life and joy and abundance in using what we have for the sake of others. In other words, and we really need to get this, God hasn't made you rich for your own sake, but to be a picture of how God richly blesses us. He richly provides us with everything to enjoy, but the way we enjoy it is by extending the same generosity we've received from God to others. Which is why Paul goes on to say that the rich are to do good, to be rich in good works. You're to be rich in the way you live for God rather than simply being rich financially. And Paul gives very uh, practical suggestions for what it means to be rich in good works. He says, be generous and be ready to share. Be generous and be ready to share. Give your money away. Give as much as you possibly can. And live in such a way that you're personally acquainted with the needs of others. So that you can share your wealth and help out other people in their need. And not just in such a way where you write a check, but where you actually share yourself with them. The word Paul uses for ready to share, it's actually a derivative of the word koinonia. The word that's used throughout scripture to describe the beauty of Christian fellowship. The way in which we're interdependent and share our lives with one another. And so Paul's saying, don't get so caught up in the pursuit of wealth that you isolate yourself from being able to actually enter into other people's lives. Yes, share your financial resources with others, but also share yourself with them. And when we live this way, when we share ourselves and, and what we have with others, we become a small glimpse of God's rich generosity. Because God is the one who shared himself with us and who has richly given us everything that we have. Which is why the true enjoyment of riches is when your riches are used to represent the heart of God. And while living this way may make us feel good, please don't buy into the message of our culture that says, yeah, you should give. 
because it makes you feel good. We may or may not feel good when we give, but we're called to give so that God can be known in and through us, and so that we become more and more like the God that we worship. Some of you, you need to start giving. You give 0% or close to that. And you have your reasons. I don't make much money. I don't have room in my budget. What I give would be insignificant. But the significance in giving isn't the quantity, but the quality. I love this story in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 21. Luke writes, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. It's just such a powerful moment in the Gospels. The most basic practice in the Scriptures, I might even dare say the radical bare minimum in the Scriptures, to cultivate generosity that's reflective of God's generosity, is the, is the practice of tithing giving 10% of your income away. And while I think there's plenty of precedent in the scriptures to say that that 10% should actually go to your local church, I want you to hear this from me. It is more important that you give than you give your money to St. Peter's Fireside. Don't get me wrong. As a community, we exist solely on our community's faithfulness in this area. But if for some reason you're not comfortable giving to us, and I don't even need to know the reason, then give somewhere else. Because giving matters in God's kingdom. It's a discipline that actively shapes us into the people that God is calling us to be. And asking the question, well, do I, do I tithe off of my, my net or my gross? It's just the wrong question. The question is, what does faithfulness look like for you? For some, 10% is out of your abundance. You don't even see it go out of your bank account. Which begs the question, are you actually being generous? Or are you just checking off a box saying, yep, I tithe. I do my due diligence. True generosity is sacrificial generosity. Like the widow who gave everything she had to live on. Her 100% wasn't even close to the rich who were giving. It was maybe like 0.00005% of what they put in. And yet Christ says her sacrificial generosity was greater than all of theirs put together. Giving isn't meant to be comfortable, and it's not supposed to be about the amount. It's about being faithful and sacrificing. So finally, we have to ask, why should we do this? You know, why should we hold our riches more loosely and use them in such a way that we sacrifice for the sake of others. Paul writes in verse 19, by giving, by being generous, the rich are storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. When we give, when we share ourselves with others, it's just an, ex an expression of how we've taken a hold of true life. It's, it's a display of how we're pursuing true riches and the only lasting foundation, Jesus himself. When we enjoy what we have by giving and by sharing, it's because we're building our lives upon the, a foundation that is not shaky, a foundation that cannot be taken away from us. It's steady. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.17, our God is the God who has 
richly provided us with everything to enjoy. And so, yes, our wealth and our stuff and our time, it's going to be enjoyed the most when we share it with others. But more importantly, God has richly given us himself to enjoy. As Paul writes elsewhere, 2 Corinthians 8 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Think about these words. Jesus was rich. He owned everything. He enjoyed the full love and presence of his Father in eternity. He created all things. He sustains and upholds all things. All things are his. And yet, for our sake, he became poor. He emptied himself by taking on the form of a human, taking on the form of a servant. And he gave and he gave and he gave until there was nothing left to give. He gave his last breath to us. And while he poured himself out, while he went from being rich to poor, he did it all so that we could go from being poor to rich. You see, through his death and resurrection, we go from deserving God's just judgment upon our sin to being forgiven and acceptable in his sight. We go from being stuck and overpowered by our sin to being set free. We go from the poverty of being enemies of God to being his beloved children. Jesus gave us everything we need, and it's in these things that we will ultimately enjoy forever. You see, any stinginess or greed or lack of giving in our lives, it's not really a money issue. It's not a money issue at all. It's a gospel issue. How do you see God? Is God truly generous? Will God truly take care of you? Is he really trustworthy with your money? We're only called to give in response to how profoundly generous God has been towards us. And when we do so, we're not just enjoying the act of giving, we're merely enjoying the stuff that we've been given. We're enjoying God himself. We're enjoying the truth of the gospel, that God gave us everything we need in Christ, and it cannot be taken away from us. And it's only by enjoying the gospel, enjoying the richness of the gospel, that the sort of generosity that Paul is talking about starts to take root in our lives, take root in our hearts. So enjoy the true richness of the gospel because only then will you truly be rich. Because you'll finally have everything you've been searching for in money. Security, a steady foundation, a meaningful and, and true identity that's not shaken by anything. And only in the richness of the gospel can we truly begin to enjoy the riches we do have here and now. We can begin to give generously. We can share ourselves with others generously. Because that's precisely what Jesus did for us.